My name is Dwayne Default, and welcome to Selling SaaS, a daily podcast that's built to get you quick hits of the best advice from the top experts for go-to-market strategies, sales, and product-led growth. Now let's get into today's episode. All right. Welcome to another episode of Selling SaaS Podcast. I'm really impressed with the way the business has been built from the, our guests today. It's been great to kind of just go back and forth before recording today and understand the back end of kind of how he's been able to grow the business to where it's had right now. And so, Carl, man, I appreciate you being on the show today and just give the audience a little bit on like what you do, what your business is and kind of how you got here. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me. My name is Carl. I'm the founder of Ticketing Hub. We're a cloud reservation for tours and activities. So in other words, words were Shopify. I started Facebook, <laughs> but you haven't heard of me called Student Box and everyone heard of Facebook and I failed miserably. And when I failed, I traded Facebook with a purpose. So the idea was Facebook with accommodation, CVs, jobs for students, etc. And I tried to do too much and I failed. And then I tried to recycle what I learned. And I started a company called Lost in London. Lost in London was catering to language schools in London. And we were organizing all their social programs. We, were, we had like t-shirts, merchandise. We were looking to do like SIM cards, credit cards for students. So it was kind of like the same kind of everything for international students. I grew the business really quickly. We had 13 people, multiple millions in turnover, selling 15 to 25,000 tickets a week. And we tried to digitalize the experience. We opened up to like one to three star hotels with a company that we bought called Minicards. And when we digitalized the whole ticketing, a student started photocopying the ticket and we got stung with the bill. So I went back to Merlin, London, I met Tussauds, historical royal palaces. And I was like, guys, can you give me a bark? And they're like, no. I was like, how that even possible? possible. And there's not a lot of fraud because the fraud actually comes from staff and not from consumers because there's always a QR code. You just don't know it's not being read. And so that's when I realized there was a need for a ticketing platform that can connect suppliers and distribution together. That's when I started Ticketing Hub. That's great. It's just one solving one problem after another that led into the next big business. And did you end up selling the other one, exiting, closing it down? Like, how did you make that transition? Yeah, I tried to bring my partners in, but I had lost quite a lot of money for the business. The, the main reason we went to a ticketing platform that charged us 20K to set up up and then none of our schools wanted to use it and they were an American wow. company so they tried to sue us saying that we didn't do the quota of tickets for the year wow. and I said thanks for letting me know in advance I actually transferred the IP which was just the name of the company and I told them thanks for letting me know you can sue us now the only thing that's actually important is the relation with the schools so <laughs> now I'll go to the press and it'll be David and Goliath and let's see who wins <laughs> Wow. So they didn't me. Yeah, it's a, it was a story. And then we bought a company called Minicards to enter the kind of like 250 hotels with the platform that we build internally. So I hired this young developer to build what we called Baduka at the time. And that worked really well. We, we increased our sales by more than 50% in two months. It was insane. The issue we had was students started photocopying the ticket. And that's when my partner was like, oh, we're tired of all your stories and your shenanigans. And I was like, guys, I found it. Like, I found the way to scale. This is it. And they were just like, oh, no. So so, yeah, so I just said, fine, do you want to buy me out? They bought me out and I started Ticketing Hub. That's great. So how long have you guys been around now? Ticketing Hub specifically. Wow. Ticketing Hub has been 10 years. The reason it's been 10 years is I had a co-founder who actually emptied our accounts, hacked our platform, started a competing business. I mean, loads of long story. And I only managed to get the shares back in October 2019. So then I started pushing in October 2019. Then COVID hit. So I survived COVID. No I survived events or anything. Like yeah, I mean, it was crazy. So he has a competing business now. He built it in three months, which is 
fantastic. Yeah. I don't know how he managed to do that. And now he went his own way. I went my own way. And now we're scaling very quickly. So catch. Wow. That's quite the story. So you've, you're pretty resilient now. Yes. You, I don't you, like you're, right, your bullshit meter has got to be dialed in. Like, you know what shit looks like then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've gone through it all. Like, I mean, he did that when I was out of cash as well, because I invested all yeah. my money into Ticketing Hub. So he knew it was a bad time for me. And yeah, I started doing consulting on the side to just pay things off. Yeah. I wasn't really pushing the business. At the time, we had the Easy Group as a customer and I couldn't promote it because if I did, then he wouldn't allow me to sell the shares. So it was this kind of catch-20 that you had to play. But I guess I played it right. His lawyer made a big mistake and I managed to acquire the shares without signing any non-disclosure. Crazy. I guess that's patience, right? And then knowing what you're dealing with. Why keep going though? Like, so if you've gotten, you've kind of gotten burned in multiple startups here. So like, why keep going? Like, <laughs> First of all, I love the, the startup world and keep going because that's the way I was built. I'm a machine. Everyone calls me yeah. a machine and, and I, I don't let go. I mean, I, I used to do martial arts and the main thing they teach you in martial arts is just keep moving forward. Never stop. It's like military training. So I, I did all this Spetsnaz training, which is a Russian special force and Krav Maga training. I was with the French team of Taekwondo. So I, it's like once you start something, you don't stop. And trust me, I've gotten a lot of offers through the years when my partner screwed me over, when COVID hit, people were like, come work for us. And I was like, no. That's very admirable. I feel like in society now, there's always that, oh, no shame and going the other direction. It's not quitting. It's only learning. But it's like, yeah, it's still quitting if you stop doing it. I mean, if there's an opportunity and you see it, why let go of it? And I don't, I, I still think there's a huge opportunity. And the market we're going for is 230 billion a year. So it, it's a huge market and no one really has the control of it. So there's a huge opportunity to, to become the Google for tours and activity ticket. And that's what I'm going for. So how do you decide where to put your focus then? Like, obviously it's like you see the opportunity and the problem that you're trying to solve with the different mm -hmm. startups that you've had, but like, how do you choose your focus? I mean, I only have one startup at a time. I, I don't have like two or three. And generally you tend to learn how to do something and then you teach someone else to do it. And that's what I've always done in, in every business, whether it was Lost in London, whether it was Drinkies, whether it was any of the other businesses I've had, I really focus. I learn how to do something and then I transfer that skill to someone else so I can control that. And that's what I've done with SEO now. So our growth has been mainly led through SEO and, and I learned how to do it during the pandemic because I was about to lose my business. We signed the biggest zoo in the UK, which basically saved us. And then I taught these skills to, to two girls in Philippines. So I came under my wing. I was like, this is how you do it. This is what I need you to do, et cetera, et cetera. And our traffic has been scaling and we've been doing really well. Aren't you worried that they're going to take those skills somewhere else? I mean, that's always, you have to take risks. Yeah. <laughs> like without risk, there's no, no reward. And I'm going to ask a lot of obvious questions. No gamble, no future. That's you have to gamble. And then I pay them much better than most people would in Philippines. And, and I give them opportunities. Recently, a lot of people ask me for advice on SEO because I do consulting on that. And I was like, girls, do you want to start a consulting business? We'll start it together. I'll bring you the clients. You start training other people and, and, and we build that. At the end, they, they just didn't have the time because they're too busy at the moment. Yeah. And I think it's really important to allow people. Some people really want to scale. I remember in one of the previous businesses, I gave someone a promotion and he didn't want it. And I was like, why wouldn't you want more money and more responsibility? And he's like, I really like this and I can go home at six and I don't have to stress and I don't want to control other people. So I think everyone's geared differently. And I just give people a chance to be who they are. I don't control them. You can really see, even with my developer, I don't know how to code. So I can't, I don't know whether my developers are, are actually doing the work or not doing the work or, or how long it would take to do the work. I mean, I have a good idea, but it's very hard for me to actually know if it's true or not. So again, you have to build trust in people and give them the opportunity to scale. All my team, most of my team actually have share options. That's great. So they're building and growing with you, not just getting a paycheck. Yeah. I mean, they have the normal paycheck. I, I didn't actually yeah. give the share options before. The share options came after. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have to earn a living, but it's, that's interesting. 
interesting. You mentioned that you're not, you don't know coding, but you kind of know what to look for towards the end. I work with a lot of technical founders where they started engineering a product and they build something and they typically struggle with this, the sales and go to market piece. Do you think that's kind of been like a strength of yours, not having that experience because then you don't even have the opportunity to micromanage or like, how do you think that served you? I'm good at sales. I'm good with people. That's what serves me the most. And then understanding what each person wanted. Obviously my ex-partner, I didn't understand very well, but it's also like, I understand where he was coming from because I was going to, to meetings and I was with the, we signed the city sightseeing global contract at the time. And that's a huge industry, 120 cities around the world. It's one of the biggest contracts you can get. And I was out with the founder and, and I was out with the head of sales and we were drinking and like, Oh, I have this developer in a cage who's this little genius. And so I can imagine he was frustrated, like thinking, Oh, Carl's not really working here. And later on, we did have a conversation and he was like, I didn't realize what sales were and how complicated it is. So, so again, it's making, making complicated things simple is what your skill set should be, whether it's coding, whether it's sales, whether it's marketing. What do you think gets in the way of the founders that kind of don't figure it out? I mean, it really depends. You need to be more specific. It could be <laughs> go, it could be problems, it, it could be being shy. I remember helping a friend of mine who has this incredible business and he takes a coffee like the Jamaica Blue Mountain back, all these very expensive coffees and he puts them in an espresso tablet. So he sells them to all the luxury hotels, all the five-star Michelin star restaurants. And he asked me, he was like, listen, I need your help to start this because I, I need to get into a few places. And I was like, cool, let me do it for you. I'll do a few phone calls. So I pick up the phone. I speak for what, half an hour with this person in mm-hmm. Vermont. And after I hang up, he looks at me. He's like, I didn't ask you to go on a date with the woman. I just, that's not what I asked. Well, what I really asked was for you to just organize a meeting. I was like, man, I know her kids. I know where she's on holidays. We're going to go into that meeting. She's not even going to ask any questions about your product because we've built trust. And that's the thing. If you want to sell something and my girlfriend keeps always telling me off, like, she's like, why do you say these things to your clients or your leads? I'm like, oh, we don't do this really well. And they're like, why would you say that? I was like, because we don't, they'll figure it out one point or another. And then they won't trust me. But when you say it up front and you say it as the first thing, hey, you know what? We don't do this really well, but this we do incredibly well. And then whatever you say afterward just has so much more impact and you created trust with the person. And so they want to work with you. So it's always this. I mean, I have another anecdote like this. And I, I was dating this girl and my name is Carl Edward. And she was calling me Edward. So we go to dinner and she's with her friend and the friend's girlfriend. And we start talking and it was the Lost in London days and I was trying to meet property owners and uh, oh you should speak to his girlfriend she works in property I was like who'd you work for gave me the name I was like oh cool I had a meeting with them last week she looks at me she's like that's impossible I managed his whole schedule and I was like well why would I lie I had the meeting I don't need anything and she's like what's your company and I was like Lost in London and she's like wait are you Carl like yeah yeah that's me she's like wow you've just solved this mystery for me she's like well I didn't know if you were hating on me or if you were just being really nice but I really liked you so I gave you the meeting. I mean, that got me into so much trouble, my girlfriend. You have no clue. But that's what it is, right? You're creating a relation with someone and you're building that relation and you're trying yeah. to help them. And for me, it's all about free information. Yeah. Well, it's, I think one of the most overlooked skill sets when it comes to sales and dealing with people is just being genuinely interested in the other person. And that yeah. leads you down these rabbit holes of trust and all the information. And if you're with someone, like my wife, when we first started dating, she used to call, used to call me the mayor because I used to be a financial advisor early in my 20s. And everywhere I went, 
went. It was like smiles and hugs and handshakes and all that stuff. And I would get up from the table and go shake hands with someone, the woman or a man or whatever. And she, she used to joke about it. And then there'd be situations like that where like that, are you sure that was like a prospecting situation or what's going on here? And I was like, you got to feed off of the energy from the other person. And, and if you're creating tension, then it's going to repel each other. So you kind of have to lean into it, but it's all about creating that trust and showing genuine interest. And some people just aren't used to that. Like, and it could come off the wrong way. I have many situations like that, very similar. Has there been any times where that's like that type of approach where you're interested building that trust with a prospect and it's kind of backfired? Like they were uncomfortable with that approach? No, I mean, generally, I mean, I've been rejected so many times. I've been kicked out of conferences. Like you can always fall back on your feet. I think that's one of the, as an entrepreneur. Well, that was a story where it worked just once out of a hundred. We don't have to talk about it. I remember meeting the CEO of Merlin Entertainment and I put a Google alert on his name. So I went to meet him at this university graduation and you couldn't even buy a ticket for the graduation because you had to be a student or go see a student. So I blagged my way in by speaking French and being like, one ticket, please. I should say the guys were like there and the queue was building. So I knew that they they need to get everyone in. So they just took my money and said, okay, go sit over there. And I met Nick Barney and he was like, I like what you did. And then the head of marketing and ticketing at the time was working for a big group. And I knew the CEO of the big group as well. So I got introduced by two of her CEOs and she was like, I don't know who you are, but I need to sit down with you. So again, it's some people respect that. I met Vernon Hill, the, the founder of Metro Bank, and I met him in the middle of the street. I didn't even have a business card with like like holes in my jeans and, and things like yeah. that. And he'll always remember who I am. Yeah. I feel like you have to, maybe this is just a bias, but I, I feel like when, whether you're a founder or you're a business leader, there's got to be a level of interest that you have to have in just connecting with people and just genuine interest in the other person. And I feel like a lot of founders specifically, they kind of, they don't involve themselves in other people. Like they don't, they spend too much time in their business. They spend too much time with their little team and they're not just trying to create a big network. And then when it comes time to actually do something with their business, they kind of hit this wall where they're like, I don't know anybody and I'm uncomfortable talking with people. And so like, how much time do you think you spend interacting with other people outside of just like doing the business? Or is that just like an everyday thing? Oh, that's like what you said about the mayor. They call me the mayor of Switzerland or like the town of Switzerland. <laughs> Since he passed away, I didn't go back until the pandemic. And I went back and people are already calling me the mayor of that city. It's called <laughs> like, how long have you been coming here? I'm like, well, actually, I didn't come for 10 years, but I met everyone now. Like for me, is again, it's this kind of like reciprocity. It's the biggest thing. It's the most important thing. If you give something to someone, they feel they need to give you something back. And, yeah. and so wherever I go, whether it's a bar or even at a conference, take a conference, for example, I go to these travel conferences and we go to this after party. What do I do? I order an Uber Lux. And so I have this van that comes up for like six people. And I'm like, hey, anyone going to this thing? Yeah, who needs a ride? <laughs> who needs a ride? Oh, yeah. cool. And they just yeah. come with you. And then you just meet the people. And then they're like, oh, let me get you a drink. And, and so you just start this conversation and you have the time because you're in a car and you're everyone's there. And it's not salesy. I'm never salesy. I don't even talk about my business necessarily. I create a rapport yeah. first. And then they're like, what do you do? And then I'm like, yeah, we innovate. And they're like, how do you innovate? Oh, we do this and that. And they're like, oh, this is really cool. It's like, yeah, like this is some of the things we do. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I feel like too many people go into situations like that and feel like they have to be networking and they have to be a certain way. And nine times out of 10, that kind of blocks them from actually being genuinely connected with people. Is there a way to kind of have that reciprocity without spending money though? Like, is there a way that you give back to people without, like, cause I get that argument too. It's like, oh, I'll buy drinks. I'll do this. And they're like, but does it have to involve money? Like, what can you do in those situations that's not spending? I mean, there's always an element of spending, whether it's time, money, effort, there's always going to be something. It's not, yeah. It doesn't have to be money, but then yeah. it's time. So, oh, have you thought about this? So I spend a lot of time showing people how AI works 
and how ChatGPT, when nobody knew what it was, I was like, oh, have you used this? Look at this tool. It can rewrite your article in two minutes. So spending a lot of time with them, educating them on, on, on what they can do differently. But you have to be very careful with that because you don't want to offend anyone. You can't say, oh, you chose this software or you're doing this way and it's wrong and you're an idiot. Yeah. I'm the clever one. You have to say, yeah, of course, before there, there weren't these tools, but now these tools have arrived. And now thanks to these tools, you can do this. So I'm not saying you're an idiot for choosing my competition. I was like, wow, you were right. That was the best tool before. I love them. I respect them so much. But you know, now you have other things that you can do. Have you thought of this? And that's how they're like, oh no, I didn't. And I was like, okay, cool. And and I actually think that SEO is going to change a lot. And my view on SEO and marketing in general, it's going to be like lost leaders. It's, it's providing a service for free or yeah. close to free just to engage and get a database. And then once you get that data, and whether it's for SaaS or even Z, Hopper, Hopper is a, the online travel agent that was very successful. Yeah. Okay. So, so they've been collecting data for many years yeah. to then understand what they can provide and how they can bring value to people. In that same perspective, I like we, a lot of our competition has been copying what we've been doing. And that's because they've raised 120 million, 25 million, but got acquired for 250. Recently, one got acquired for 120. So they have a lot of budget. Uh, we don't have that budget, but we have creativity. And so we release a feature and three, four months later, I see my competition coming out with that feature. Yeah. So how do you keep ahead of the curve? So now we've launched two separate businesses that have nothing to do with Ticketing Hub that are almost free to free of charge that connect with our competition. That's genius. So now we're providing a service because I was like, okay, if I do this with my platform, what's going to happen? They're just going to copy me. Yeah. Right. And then where's my US? But now it's like, oh, this is a super cheap product. No one's going to try to compete with it because they're never going to get an ROI with it. But I'm making a huge database of their customers using my surface. Yeah. So why do you think more people don't think that way? I, I've always thought out of the box. I, I've never been like when, whenever I did consulting or anything like that's why people hire me. I think it's just like people are maybe in their silo and they don't see things differently. I've always seen things differently. Yeah. I always like asking unique questions in, in unique situations and the better question, the better answer, which turns better results. Like, is there a framework that you kind of, or is there like a set of questions that you go in there, like ask, like figuring out what problem you're actually solving or getting things down to first principle thinking? Like, is there a way you approach those problems that may be different than others? Problem is that a lot of people don't know what the problem is. So even if you ask them, they wouldn't be able to answer. Yeah. So I think the, the best way to look at it is asking them what they do on a day to day. So I'll give you a simple example. We, we do the tickets for the U.S. military and I get the general on the phone and he's like, Carl, we're having a lot of problems with people putting the wrong email address in. And he was like, could you put those two boxes to validate the email address? And I was like, hell no. I was like, wait, I, I like there's no chance. And he's like, Carl, we really need this. This will help us. I was like, I know your problem is the input. We'll find a solution. And we found a solution where we validate the email before someone can get to the checkout. So now you can't actually buy a ticket for one of Ticketing Hub's customers without having a valid email address. And that's a problem that he had, but with the solution was completely different. So like trying to get down to what the problem people are having or how you can solve it. During the pandemic was a brilliant other example. People were saying, oh, we have to cancel these tickets. How do we do this? So we created this magic link that enables customers to actually exchange their tickets, cancel them on their own or change it for a future date. Yeah. And that's one of the features that a lot of our competition co copied after us. So again, yeah. it's what is your problem? How, what's, where are you spending the most amount of your time and what can we do to actually minimize that?
Yeah, I feel like a lot of companies, they just look at the problem in that specific situation. It's like, that's all they see. And then you run into think like apps that have all these little weird widgets everywhere. And like, it feels like you're in a lot of different places all the time, rather than creating an actual seamless process that doesn't seem like it has problems, but you just solved them differently. Yeah, you have to solve them differently. So again, it, it depends on who you're speaking to. Sometimes you're speaking to entrepreneurs and they have great ideas. Sometimes you're speaking to entrepreneurs and they have terrible ideas. And you're like, oh, we're not going to, but I'm, I'm sorry. Sometimes you think, you're speaking to employees and they don't know what their problem is. They don't know it's possible. When I released the magic link or the email validation, people contacted me. They're like, well, we don't have anyone calling us to say that they didn't get their email. Is there a problem with your software? I was like, no, we added this. They're like, this is genius. So again, like, and I told them, why didn't you tell me this was a problem before? Why didn't you pick up the phone and say, Carl, I get so many people that do this the solution I need. They don't know that there's a possible solution to their problem. That's why you really need to speak to people and get things. You need to pull things out of their mouth. They're just like, oh, What's your day-to-day process? How do you do this? And a lot of people tell me, like, now we're 10 people in the team. I still do all the sales calls and all the support yeah. calls. And yeah. everyone's like, "What? why are you doing this? I get my team on my sales calls and my support calls. So why are you doing this? And a friend of mine sent me this article from V saying it's really important for everyone in the team to actually understand what they're building, why they're building it, what are the problems the customers are having. And, and the only way I'm going to figure that out is actually by doing it myself. And often uh, a lot of the things, simple example, we have a customer that has about 30 products and in, in we do ticketing so we have to send out the address to the customer and the address that she had was a parking where everyone can park but they closed the parking she's like oh so Carl how do I update the address for all of my 20 or 30 products and I was like oh you have to do that manually on your 30 products so I was like don't worry I'll do it for you call my team guys clone button quick yeah. now and, and now we have a clone button that will clone all your addresses by actually having to do things yourself you understand where the problem lies what's taking you the most amount of time And now I tell my customers, if you take more than two minutes to do anything on Ticketing Hub, you're doing it wrong. Wow. I know so many founders that haven't talked directly to their customers in years. It's it's impossible. I just don't get it. Like, and it happens in very large companies too, not just startups Mm -hmm. where I've seen where it's like they have these problems on the ground level, but they keep making these decisions on things like too far away from the customer. And they're thinking way too much about what's the bottom line rather than what's actually solving for the customer. Because when you solve for the customer, like you just showed a couple examples of, then the bottom line kind of takes care of itself. That's exactly what we were talking about almost before. Like we don't do sales because we get recommended by customers. Yeah. Uh, We have the biggest VR company in the world. They reached out to me because of a recommendation. We have the biggest tour in the world. They came to us. Again, the reputation you have in the industry and, and if you look at like comments and often people reach out to me and they're like, oh, we've been reading about like comments and websites about Ticketing Hub and it's the only business where they say that you speak to someone and they actually listen and they're trying yeah. to solve your problem. Yeah. Um, whereas in the other companies, you're just a number. And so having that personal approach with people, the way I signed City Sightseeing pre-co-founder well, was I went up to them and I was like, there's no system on the market that will do what you want, except for the two that you already know, and you're obviously not happy with them. Mm. But we have 80% of what you need. So we will build that extra 20% to your requirement so that you have the right system for you. So what happened? They paid us for over a year without actually using our service. Wow. And that's the same thing I did with this VR company. I went to them. I was like, what do you need? How can we solve it? And they're like, this is what we need. I was like, no contract, no nothing. I will build it free of charge. Anyway, I'll use it for someone else if it's not for you. I will build it. We built it. They liked it. They signed up. Why do you think more companies don't do that? I don't know. I don't like the whole VC approach. And I know that if I had like investors behind me, they'd say just focus on one thing and one vertical. And right now we have probably like 50 different industries from bookstores, bike rentals, 
tours, food tours, walking tours, VR experience. Like we have so many different industries. And now I know I can cater to all of them. It's very rare that I say to someone that, oh, we can't do that. And so now that we have the models for everyone, what we're trying to do is rebuild our backend to fit all of those models and be efficient. Yeah. Once we've got that, then we can get to the next step of automatic onboarding, simpler UI. We track everything, everything. What do you mean by everything? I, I track like my widget to the checkout, where people are going, where they're getting lost, where they're spending more time, where we can optimize things. So we're really data driven more than anything. Yeah. Very simple example to that. Everyone in the industry does vouchers that are assigned to a product and monetary vouchers. Monetary vouchers are just a sum that you can buy and redeem multiple times. So we've copied everyone at the beginning because that's what we thought everyone needed. And so we had this thing where you can buy a 30 pound, 50 pound, 100 pound voucher. And what we realized is that customers would go to that page, try to buy a voucher, but not know what the price of the product was. Imagine you're trying to do a city sightseeing. We do city sightseeing Belfast and you go there, you want to buy a voucher for a friend of yours that's going to Belfast. And you go on that page, you look at the price and then you're like, oh, what is the price of an adult ticket? So you leave that page, you go to the page, you try to figure out the price and then you come back to that voucher page. But as you need to sell, like your sales cycle is short. You need to sell quickly. You should every extra step, they can get a call, someone can distract them. So we've realized that by tracking the customer and we realized. And so now what we've done is we have the same, this is your amount that you want to put in, but then we have select your product. And if you select the product, then you see the price of every individual ticket that will populate the box with the amount you need. Wow. That makes sense? No, it does. I live in this world from a sales optimization perspective where I'm doing an audit or I'm putting myself through the funnel. I'm like, there's just too many damn clicks. Like the user just gets lost. You don't know what to do in the product once you get into it. And they're like, we need a sales process. I'm like, no, you just need to simplify this damn thing and then put salespeople on it to go upstream. Is there a, and you kind of just answered the question I had is like, was there a specific situation where you were able to use the data to solve a problem that increased conversions? And so did that solving that problem increase conversions? Was it increased in ticket size or cart size? It increased the conversions of vouchers for our customers. Yeah. Is there another, was there something that you used from the data that was like a really big unblocker for anything? Like, was there like, we changed this and this happened, or is it kind of just my minor improvements over the last eight to 10 years? It's minor improvements. I mean, I fight with my designer all the time because I think I'm a good designer, but I'm not. Um, It's like, oh, why do you want to change this? This works really well. And he's like, no, it's shit. And then we test it and everyone's like, oh, this is so much simpler. I was like, yeah, he was right. So yeah, there's this where, again, it's a continuous battle of trial and error. I I tell my team constantly, make mistakes. I want you to make mistakes because that's how you learn. If you don't make mistakes, if you don't try, you're never going to get anywhere. So we try to get as much information as we can and then we make mistakes and it's okay to make mistakes and customers understand that I I mean a few years ago we had a Santa's Grotto that took our whole platform down almost for a day (laughs) you can imagine the stress that I was under they were under and my team and at the end of the day we managed to bring it back up and down and up and down and and at the end of the day this customer comes up to me and he's like listen Carl I'm really sorry we need to do a press release this is very bad for us we had journalists contact us people were coming on our website to say why the hell couldn't we manage the infrastructure? And it's complicated because they ha- we have to show a whole calendar month open and we have to show every single day. And then options, like they had an option every 10 minutes with like uh-huh. exceptions. I mean, it's, it's a complicated system. Like it, it seems simple. It's not. Anyhow, so I speak to the customer. I'm like, yeah, no problem. The, continue talking to them. I spoke to them through the whole day. They were calling me every 20 minutes. I, I just held their hand. Like guys, we're working on it. So we didn't lose the customer. They signed up for the next year. I didn't lose a single customer during the whole time. And my team contacted me afterwards saying, thank you for not even calling me once. Wow. I didn't call them. There was no point in calling my team. What's the result? We're still trying to figure out the problem or I'm not going to get anything and it's only going to be more pressure on them. There's no, so you need to just keep your calm. And and the most important,
important is for me, it's always been the case. It's managing expectation, yeah. managing your customer's expectation, managing everyone's expectation is the most important. People know that you'll make mistakes. Nothing is perfect in this world. And people are, are understanding of that. So you said like the beginning where it's like just kind of almost not self-deprecation, but it's like just admit faults up front and acknowledge the fact that it's not going to be perfect. So when it does happen, people aren't all up in arms and it's set up with it, even though that's reality. But you just set poor expectations by communicating perfection rather than yeah. reality. And, and often I say that, like, I mean, I had one customer that almost left for one of our competitors and, and, and I was like, why are you leaving? And he's like, oh, your competitor is free. And I was like, nothing is free. Well, actually, like I can tell the whole story is Red Bull. So we started working with Red Bull. I come came on the market and they're kind of like your ticket master. And I told them, I was like, listen, guys, we can't do free. There's no way I can offer you a free service. And they said, well, like, well, this company is offering it for free. And I was like, guys, nothing is free. And so they went with the dice a year later, well, stole all their database Wow. and then said, hey, guys, you want to use our database? It's 10%. Wow. And so that's how dice is now a big platform. And, and they're trying to replicate this model. I mean, I, I know the founders or oh, I met the founders. I don't know them. A fantastic model, but they're trying to replicate in Europe and they can't necessarily penetrate those markets because their value in the UK is the database they have. And they got that database by pretending they were free. And then they just went out to the market. Now, if imagine you're doing all the tickets for Red Bull for a year, you have the whole database of every Red Bull customer. Now imagine you're running a festival and you're like, well, we have 200,000 people and we know what kind of music they like and what they're doing. Wow. I mean, that's valuable, but still like kind of, it's like a backhanded way of providing value by almost stealing people's information. But that's whatever, like, it's what I'm doing with my free product, right? I don't think it's backhanded. I think it's smart and kudos to them. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think there's a level of transparency that they weren't open about if that's the case. Like it's, I think there's kind of like the being open and honest with the perfection versus the faults and stuff. Like if people know that this is what's happening, then it's like, okay, they're fine with it. They're signing up for it. But I think I mean, you're signed up to Facebook. You're signed up. I know though. Like I know it's, like, they take your data, right? Right. It's like if it's free for me, it's like well, they're making their money off of the information they're collecting, and I think and they could do a little bit better job about telling people that. But it's it is what it is, and it's we sign up for things left and right, and we don't care what happens until something happens that we technically don't agree with. But then it's like, well, you sign the terms and agreements when you sign up. I mean, there's a new company. I forgot their name now, and what they've done, they've overlaid a video camera on top of uh, radio signals from a Wi-Fi, and they basically said, learn and try to figure out where people are. And then they've taken the camera away and the AI was able to see where people were and what position they were in. So now with a simple router, they can actually see who's in the room and, and how the people are interacting and where they are. So like there's a lot of information that, that is actually available that people don't even know is available. It's kind of scary. I mean, it's super scary. I mean, your information is not safe. Like I can, I mean, I'm sure you've looked at solutions like that that can hack into your phone within like two minutes. I, I've worked with like, security software companies and like the management and outsource companies is like helping them get their sales and marketing engine up and running and like going through some of their decks and presentations and having like in-depth conversations to build their value props. I'm like, this is some serious shit. This is no joke. Like the movies aren't joking. If not, it's probably worse in real life than it is in the movies. But I think, I think there's a level of transparency that can happen in business. I mean, I, I, I can't sell something that I don't believe in. That's always been my thing. So I'm super like, if I sell ticketing hub and I've said this to people I'm like, oh, you want this, go and see this com- competitor. And then they don't yeah. understand. I'm like, this and I do this really well. If yeah. you want something, I'll go somewhere else. Yeah. And I recommend, I recommend my competition and I'm like, oh, this, they do it better than me. Yeah. And so again, and those will then recommend me to other people. They're like, well, this 
this guy crazy enough to go see your competition. I really like what he had to say, like go and see him. Yeah, I think it's, if people just try to close everybody or get every customer, I think it just creates a bad perception and they're signing themselves up to fail. Terrible. I mean, even if the customer is not happy, sometimes they're in a contract. Like what happened to me at Lost in London with this ticketing business. I was like, what are you going to gain from this? I'm not going to give you a penny. And I guarantee you that I'm going to go all over the press and no one, like I'll go on every single forum. Yeah. I'm an entrepreneur. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> Break down doors. What are you going to gain from this? You're going to just charge me for a system that was shit like from the first place. It might work very well for what other people use it, but for what I wanted and what I asked you for, it didn't work. And actually, I don't necessarily say the name of the company, but at the beginning, when it was the just hot, I was telling everyone, this company, don't touch them. Yeah. So I'd rather someone not use my system or not be that like, we don't have contract. Why? Because if someone's not happy with me, then I don't want them to stay and then go like badmouth me. Because it's hard for people to say good things about you, but it's very easy for them to say bad things about you. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I believe the same thing. I have worked for many different companies, startups, big corporation type companies, and the whole contract thing, like, yeah, sure, it looks good on paper when you've got multi-year contracts, but it's like, it that doesn't matter if they're not happy. Like, that's just, you're forcing people into a situation and then having the, the small print legalese to where it's like, oh, you, you have to let us know 60 days before the renewal or else automatically renews and then you're stuck for another year. It's just, I just think it's bad business and it's trying to weasel your way into just collecting revenue instead of solving a real problem for a customer. It's just, I think it's bad. No. I think it's terrible business. And, yeah. and at the end of the day, if you have a good lawyer, he will get you out of that contract right. in a second. So it's not even worth the time and the effort. And actually go speak to lawyers. I mean, maybe in the US it's different, but in the UK, lawyers are expensive and they're not good. Oh, they're so, very expensive here too. That's yeah. no joke. But you don't, um, like in the US, you can sue people much. It's a lot easier to sue. In the um, UK, it's a lot harder to, like it costs you a lot more money and you're not even sure to win. It's my experience. Yeah. And, and what am I going to do? I have clients that owe me money in like some island somewhere. And like, what am I going to do? Go chase the money and get a lawyer to go and get like two bucks? Well, it's going to be such a distraction from the other parts of the business. Like then yeah. everyone else suffers. Correct. So I, yeah. I just don't focus. And during the pandemic, I, I didn't charge any of my customers, like anyone. I was just like, like guys, it's fine. It's like, if you can't pay me, you don't pay me. It's fine. We'll, we'll yeah. figure it out. That's um, awesome. I know a lot of companies that didn't do that. Like, so what was the retention like from going through COVID? Like, I assume that oh, people have almost 100% retention after COVID. Like, but the, the main thing is that we did have some customers go under. But other than that, we didn't lose any customers. Actually, the opposite. We gained some because a lot of the reservation softwares on the market were didn't have time slots. So the, the big zoo that I signed in the UK, which is one of the biggest zoos in the UK, they signed up because their previous system couldn't, they just had opening times. And now with COVID, they needed time slots. Huh, that's cool. You would think that's like, now looking back, you're like, well, that should have been something that's obvious and you should do in a ticketing software of any kind. But companies that can't make that pivot or adjustment, they kind of fall, they fall behind everybody that can. And that's one of the reasons why I like startups is that allows you to, I think it allows you to have those adjustments mid roadmap or right in the middle of business where it's like, this is a huge, we need to do this for many reasons. And in startups, it allows you to kind of have that flexibility to do it. Whereas like bigger businesses, it feels like you have to jump through all these. That's how I got into SEO. Cause before I was doing cold calls, just like when I started the business 10 years ago and we scaled really quickly with cold calls. But then I was like, we, we hit the pandemic. That's just before I got the business back for my ex co-founder. So I got the business in 2019. I started kind of preparing everything and then COVID hit. And I was like, I can't call someone to say, Hey, you're, do you want to change your reservation software in the middle of your business? That's not the right approach. So I was yeah. like, how can I like let people know that I'm there and I'm back in the market without calling them? And I was like, yeah. best way is SEO. And there's this, it takes time. So I was like, yeah. okay, so this is the time I have to actually build my SEO and become number one. I mean, we ranked for 326 keywords in the top three of Google. 
Wow. So that's where we get a lot of our traffic. And then being a bit clever about what you do, we've created alternative two pages. So I have mm. alternative to Fair Harbor, alternative to Peak. And Fair Harbor being the largest one in the industry acquired for 250 million by Booking.com. And like that page is literally the same for about a hundred of our competitors that I've not changed a word from any of them. And wow. I'm actually the number fifth result on alternative to Fair Harbor. I just sometimes it fascinates me when people struggle to figure things out. So like, how did you get to that point? Like, was it just constant testing? Was it knowing what to do getting into it? Like, how do you get it to that point and then maintain it? I mean, getting it to that point was easy because nobody else were doing it. They were just acquiring advertising. So they were just spending a lot of money on someone else's like words, like keywords. Like they weren't doing their own SEO. They were just purchasing ads and placements. Yeah, they were purchasing ads and that has a huge cost. We don't have that huge cost. We don't have a sales team. We don't have all of this. So we save a lot on that and we spend a lot on developers and designers. And then the main people that were competing for those words were the Capteras and the G2 of this world. And so nobody was underneath. So if you had just content, just alternative Fair Harbor on your page, you will rank just under those. So it's just finding out where there's space that no one else is playing in and kind of doubling down on that. Yeah. So like instead of going for all the like the keywords that everyone goes for, I, yeah. I went for the long tail. I have 138 industry pages. So like if you look and I get customers now that are like karaoke's and they're like, oh, you're the only system I've seen that has a karaoke page. And, and so again, just think about it from a customer point of view. If you're looking for something and you're doing something specific, you want to know that they do that specific thing. Yeah. If you're a karaoke, you're going to say karaoke booking software or karaoke booking system. Yeah. Or booking software for karaoke. So yeah. you're always going to do that. And even salespeople were using people's names to actually lure them by paying advertising for them. So yes, you'll look for booking software or tour booking software. But if you're in that niche, you will still try to find someone in that niche and you will use that keyword. And that's where we that's where they find us. So did you just like just start writing pages for all the different categories and all the different like key, long term? Did you start just writing a whole bunch of pages like for months and months? Just all you did was just write pages. So, yeah. So I use a lot of like keyword density. I have a friend of mine who's a great SEO guy. And then I started training him because I started mm-hmm. understanding this whole kind of like data around SEO. And I remember I was trying to rank the word the page zoo booking software. And what I realized is that Google has this cluster of words for your website. So I started creating loads of pages with all the OTAs I'm not connected to. Uh, OTAs are online travel agents, just in case, so like the Expedias and things like that. So I created all of these pages, even though I wasn't connected to them, because Google will assume that I am connected to them just because I have that page on my website and mm-hmm. then turnstiles and this and that. So, so we had a lot of pages that gave Google the impression that we knew what we were talking about. And then uh, on the page itself, Google wants to know that you have all of the key keywords around the subject. So if you're looking at a zoo, you're going to be like animal keeper, tickets, membership, and loads of words around the topic of the zoo ticketing. And so what I realized is that we were missing the word membership because we don't have membership and Google want us to have membership. So what? That was two years, three years ago now. Time flies. So I wrote like on my page, I don't know if I still have a screenshot, but I wrote membership. I know you want membership. We will build membership. Membership is coming. Talk about keyword density and go to the number one page of Google. And that's how the zoo in the UK found us. That's crazy. And so you're, so you look at not only like the obvious primary keyword, but you incorporate kind of the secondary keywords that are associated with it and focus on the density of those keywords as well, where I feel like a lot of SEO people will just focus on the primary keyword and not think about all the associated subjects or topics or anything like that. And that's where I think maybe a lot of subjects that are the most important and actually having all of them together 
together. I'm in the process of launching an OTA actually. And the way we're building it is we're looking at all the keywords, like let's say Futur in Vienna has a keyword complexity of under 20. So actually, if you write the content correctly, you can rank first, second or third of Google without any backlinks, without any like a brand new website, a landing page can actually rank really well if you know what to write and how to write it. And so now we're using AI to automatically generate those pages. So we're doing a test now. And if that works, we're going to be able to launch hundreds of mini OTA specific niche. So imagine food tour in Lisbon or pub crawl in Lisbon or boat ticket in or something like that. Because everyone, your trip advisor of this world or your get your guide, they're going for the Lisbon or things to do. And I actually bought the domain things to do in. So (laughs) the most researched term in Google for travel is things to do in London that even Google launched their product called things to do in. I bought things to do in India. So again, like all of these things are things that I learned with time, but I like, I spent hours, days, night studying this thing and understanding and realizing what made a difference. And actually keyword stuffing is actually that penalizes you. I have customers that say, Hey, we've written content with AI and we're not ranking. I'm like, why would you You need to understand that it's not just what you write. It's not about writing content anymore. And that was what my consultant was telling me, he's like, oh, write a blog and you'll get loads of traffic. I was like, actually, no, (laughs) these can all be connected. And the words and the amount of time you use a word is really critical. Do you have like a playbook that you could, someone can like read as I'm like sitting here, I'm like, damn, I need to update some stuff on my website. I mean, I don't have a playbook. I've been thinking about it a a little bit, but I I haven't got there. Uh, I'm not really good with video. So like, this is like, I think my third interview online, I tend to be very private, but I know that getting backlinks and and all that helps a lot. So yeah, um, that's why I'm doing those videos. And but yeah, if you want, we can do a playbook. We can do another video specialized. I was going to say that would be, I mean, having a framework in place to just help with anything. I mean, not just for myself, but I, the companies that I work with too, and being able to help them with certain things. Because I work with a lot of bootstrap companies and a lot of times they don't have the budgets. They don't have the, the team to go and sit and just go play the bidding war on the Googles and the Facebooks and all that stuff. And they need a better way to do it. And like, I'm not an SEO person at all. I'm just like, cool, make sure you have pages that are relevant and easy to click through. Like I'll optimize pages for their lead acquisition, making sure that they've got the right CTA and the right type of form and that type of stuff, collecting the right information, but getting people there, that's a different story. Like that's not, I feel like that's completely different language that I struggle to learn. So I think SEO is one of those like fine art and combination with technology that come together. So I'm always fascinated about it. But yeah, the thing is like, it's a combination of so many things that you need to understand. Yeah. And that's the hard part for a founder. Like, I don't know how to build a website. I have no clue how to do that. I mean, one of my favorite books is Don't Make Me Think because it's this guy who like Steve Krug who built the Amazon layout. And he just says when someone's on a website, they shouldn't think. You should have twice the same link. You shouldn't have this. So taking that principle and applying it to our UI, I had to learn how to do Webflow. I know how to like operate Webflow. I rebuild my website three times. Once mm. because I got a designer to do it and then the lighthouse speed was terrible. And then I was like, oh shit, my lighthouse speed should be higher. So I need to find someone else to do it. And then you get someone else to do it. And then you realize, well, we have all these pages that no one's going through. So our yeah. funnel is obviously not working. How can we optimize the funnel, the funnel people want to go through. What is the information you want to do? Oh, I have a lot of features. Nobody wants features. They want to know how those features solve a problem. All of these things that you're kind of learning. And so as a founder, not only do you need to know, you can go to an agency. And what I say with an agency, it's it's a flip of a coin. Mm -hmm. Like you get a good agency or you get a good guy within that agency and you have a great thing and it can go really well. Or you can get someone that's terrible and you don't really know until you have the end result and you've already paid for it. Yeah. And so it's, it's really hard. And people ask me, could you recommend 
recommend someone. I'm like, not really. It's so personal. And I don't want to give those recommendations because sometimes they don't deliver. And yeah. again, it's, you can get great websites, but then you have to pay huge amounts for it. And I, I've gone to agencies and they're like, oh, you want a website 50K? I'm like, what? I can't do that. 50. And I, I, I paid someone with Bitcoins to build my website because they were in Russia originally. Yeah. So yeah, again, you find a way to do it and then you learn and then you reiterate and you reiterate. And that's the most important. You don't stop, you continue. There's no stopping. You just, you learn, you reiterate, you go and, and you learn so many transferable skills. I mean, like I said, I, I don't know how to build a website, but I can manage Webflow. I can manage WordPress. I've never yeah. learned how to code. I know how to do as content marketing. I can do like Google ads. I can, so, so you, as a founder, you learn more and more skills that I didn't have to have in my previous businesses before it was like my first business, I was selling bottles of water, but my mom thought I was crazy because I was selling <laughs> bottles of water for a dollar and so no one's going to buy a bottle of water for a dollar. And I was like, yeah, they will. It's marketing. Yeah. And we ended up finding Shiseido, Converse, Dorchester, wow. and we were just doing their own bottle of water. But again, it's a completely different set of skills. I, I didn't need to know how to build a website. My website wasn't where people were finding me. Yeah. I was cold calling. And then once I spoke to them, I had to speak to marketing and to procurement because procurement was like, why the hell would I pay a dollar for a bottle of water? And yeah. then marketing was like, oh, a dollar is cheap. So they had to combine their budget to get together and, and buy that product. Wow. Yeah. But that's, I think the skill stacking piece, I think is a lot, not just founders, but a lot of people miss. So if I know we're kind of running over time here, but if there was anything that if people made it to this point of the episode and they were to walk away with one kind of final thought, like, cause I, I feel like you just kind of went through that a little bit with the skill stacking and never stopping. We can probably end the episode there, but if like, there was one thing you can tell anybody, like what would that be? So I met a very famous entrepreneur, I would say not in the best environment in a strip club. <laughs> and I went up to him and I asked him, what's the best advice you can give to a young entrepreneur. And I think this is one of the best advice I received when someone says, yes, stop talking. And with that, I can't say no more, but Carl, man, it's, I'd love the conversation. I feel like we can do a whole different episode just on more tactical stuff about scaling startups and being a bootstrap. We didn't even get into any of that stuff, but I feel like we got so much great information from you. Where can people find you if they want to know more information, either about you or even your businesses? They can find me on LinkedIn, Carl Peel, my businesses.com. And uh, yeah, if someone tries to reach out to me, please say that they've seen your video because I don't accept all LinkedIn invitations. There you go. There might be some robots. Right. I'm always happy to jump on a call with someone and, and give some advice and free advice. Yeah, no, Carl, I appreciate it. I feel like I took a ton of notes, like different parts of the show for different things. And that makes me want to go back through the SEO and stuff that I'm doing on my own website. And that's why I do these shows. I always get to learn alongside the audience. So I appreciate you. And if there's anything that I can do or we can do to help, don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah, just let me know. I'm happy to jump on a call and, and talk about that. Awesome. Appreciate you, Carl. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Selling SaaS Podcast. And if you got value from today, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. 